Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. For decades, the tree of life was the most common visual expression of the evolutionary process, offering everyone from scientists to elementary school students an image of the history of life on Earth. However, within the past few decades, recent discoveries in molecular biology have completely overturned the conventional understanding of evolution. With his groundbreaking new book, The Tangled Tree, a radical new history of life, best-selling author and acclaimed journalist, David Quammen discusses the fascinating and unexpected discoveries that have reshaped what we thought we knew about life's complexity and how humans and every other living thing came to be. David Quammen is the author of 15 books, a contributor to numerous periodicals, including National Geographic, and in May of 2016, wrote the entire text of the issue of National Geographic on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the first time in the history of the magazine that an issue was single-authored. David shares a home in Bozeman, Montana, with his wife, Betsy Gaines Quammen, an environmental historian, along with two Russian wolfhounds and a cross-eyed cat. He is a great guy. His book is fascinating, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you David Quammen. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. You have been writing about science for years, but that you didn't start writing about science, right? You, you were you were that wasn't your initial sort of literary track that you imagined yourself going on, right? Yeah, no, that's right, Scott. Um, do you prefer Scott, by the way? Scott is great. There's really, okay. there's not much you can really do with Scott as a, as a <laughs> so you can't really shorten it, you can't really lengthen it, you don't really do much with it. Anyway, you're right. Yeah, I started as a, um, I started as a fiction writer. The first published book that I did was a novel back in 1970, sort of an auto. I was a young man, an autobiographical novel about friendship between blacks and whites on the west side of Chicago in 1968 when things were tense and hot. And um, and then uh, I paid my dues between my first book and my second book rather than before my first book. Spent 13 years between book one and book two, tending bar, waiting tables, working as a fishing guide, uh, working as a ghostwriter and discovering nonfiction, discovering it first as a reader that it can be not just fascinating and informative, but artful and imagine. Well, artful, let's say and creative. I don't create facts, but I create shapes with facts. And uh, and then I started doing nonfiction for magazines, mostly about the natural sciences and then eventually books. Uh, and I'm going to close my email program so we don't get any bongs. <laughs> bongs. Yeah, those are. Yeah, those are good to avoid. Boy. Boings, I mean. Boings, no, right. Bongs, 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 bongs. <laughs> Depending on what state, you know, bongs are more yeah. dangerous. But your most recent book is The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. And you, basically, your book starts with Darwin and this idea that, that it, you talk about in various notebooks. He had these these sketches about 
how life evolved and the common origins. And this isn't a new idea. This is you, you point out you can find this idea of the tree of life in the Bible and Aristotle or everything in Western thought at some point goes yeah. back to Aristotle. Yeah. But, you know, that Darwin with his sort of research in the Galapagos and other places, you know, was working on this idea of this this way life originated from a common source at the trunk of the tree and out sort of from the branches into different species, right? And we settle on this kind of picture of heredity, right? Uh, you know, the traits get passed on and m- variants mutation. And then he reads Malthus, right, in economics and figures out that well, nature's red and tooth and claw and scarcity. You put those three things together, right? heredity, variation, scarcity, and you get how we we go from one origin at the trunk of the tree to all the species we think of, you know, and as we look around, the you know, our planet, right? Right, right. And go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, yeah. And he makes this little stick figure drawing. This is 1837. He's just back from the voyage of the Beagle, and he's got this idea that species change lineages evolve over time he doesn't know how and he's calling a transmutation what we now call evolution but the idea that lineages of animals and plants and other creatures can change over time and that they have all originated from one or very few common ancestors way in the deep past so he draws this little stick figure in his notebook his secret private transmutation notebook of a tree trunk Divergent. Maybe I can even. I don't know if this is worth trying, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. You actually, yeah, that you have that there in your book. Yep, yep. Yeah. So um, he draws that, and he writes o- above it. I think, meaning, I think this is what happened. I think this is the history of life, the shape of the history of life. Common origin, uh, limbs diverging, branches diverging from the limbs. Uh, divergence, divergence, divergence over time, and eventually you've got biological diversity as we see it today. That's the classic, that's the, really the first evolutionary tree of life. Um, and then when he publishes The Origin of Species, uh, you know, 22 years later, he's got a, a more complicated version of that, but it's still divergence, divergence, divergence. That was what we had. And throughout the 20, most of the 20th century, as neo-Darwinism, what they call the modern synthesis of evolutionary thinking, um, grew and and became more uh, persuasively confirmed and more elaborate and more detailed, including modern genetics and paleontology and uh, developmental biology, all these things synthesized together. That is still what we had. We had the tree of life, trunk, limbs, branches, divergence, divergence, divergence. What my book is about, and the reason it as the title it does, The Tangled Tree, is this revolution that it didn't destroy that understanding, but it it added to that understanding. It challenged that understanding by showing that divergence, divergence, divergence is too simple. And there's also these phenomenon where lineages have come together. Genes have moved sideways across boundaries from one species into another, even from one kingdom of life into another, so that the tree is tangled. Some of the limbs grow into one another, a phenomenon that you don't see in, in living trees on planet Earth. And this all began in, in the 1970s, and it's still going on, drastically changing how we understand the history of life. Yeah, and for instance, there are there are instances where children are conceived with three parents right now, right? Where, where 
you have a, maybe there's some genetic problem, and so they'll take an egg. And I was reading about this recently, where where there's some sort of genetic d- disease predisposition in the egg. They fertilize the egg because that whatever the dis- the the trait is not passed on by the sperm but by the egg. So they they fertilize it and then put it in a new egg, a different egg, and somehow you know the the the, the you, you know, DNA changes <laughs> with these kinds of, uh, again, it seems like one of these sort of uh, lateral moves like you're talking about, right? Where, where DNA, it changes. Uh, and, and then we find out things like mitochondria that, inv- that are involved in, in, in these sort of, you know, lab pregnancies. These things are actually used to be like viruses and stuff, right? Yes, yes. And there, I've heard a little bit about that three parents phenomenon, but I haven't researched it, so I can't talk about that um, in any detail. But you're absolutely right that what we're discovering is that there are natural equivalents of this. This has been going on. Now, a simpler version is, you know, people talk about genetically modified organisms, like some people in a lab are going to take a gene from a jellyfish and put it into a tomato for some purpose. It's going to give the tomato some sort of frost resistance or maybe resistance to uh, to a pesticide used to kill weeds or something like that. And genetically modified organisms. We know this is controversial. This is a hot topic. And some people say, well, that shouldn't be done because you're going to create some sort of a Frankenstein monster. Other people say it shouldn't be done because it's not natural. It doesn't happen in nature. But now what we realize from these discoveries that I describe in the book is that it does happen in nature. And genes do move sideways from one kind of creature into another and establish themselves in certain cases. It's not common, but it's consequential in the genomes of the new creature so that so that the genome contains a gene that did not come down to it vertically through the endless chain of, of ancestors and descendants, parents and offspring, but came in sideways by some form of infection and became part of the genome. Yeah, and you know that this happens all the time, and and most where where this is where this process of this sort of horizontal splicing, this horizontal development happens all the time in something most people are familiar with a little bit in the news in these sort of anti things that bacteria that are that are resistant to uh, to, uh, sort, to antibiotics. antibiotics, right? When we have, yeah. which is what everybody gets afraid of, right? People are using too many antibiotics and the, and right. bacteria get too used to them. But it doesn't require a bacteria to sort of have ancestors and keep, uh, you know, go evolving. That bacteria that are in close proximity can sort of swap notes and yep. develop immunities, which is just astounding. That's that, and that's what we understand now. Yeah, the old picture is that you know a bacteria, a strain of bacteria might become resistant to an antibiotic through slow incremental mutation, little changes, letter by letter in the genetic code, and then as they change the mistake in copying their DNA, uh, natural selection works on them. They the, the fittest survive, so the fittest versions of the bacteria um, emerge, and they are resistant to this particular antibiotic. That's classic Darwinian explanation for antibiotic resistance. Well, that still happens, but what we now understand is that once that resistance has evolved, 
in one strain of in one strain of bacteria that can be passed sideways instantaneously to a completely different strain of bacteria and that's why the problem has spread around the world so quickly horizontal gene transfer of genes for resistance to antibiotics so you've got You've got bugs like MRSA. A lot of people have heard of MRSA, M-R-S-A. It's one of these superbugs, killer bacteria. Yeah, you wind up people, with people just die like after very short periods of time, right? It people are dying in hospitals, bacteria. At, you know, 50 years ago, we'd cure that with penicillin. It'd be no big deal uh, or with methicillin or something. But now we've got MRSA, which means methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, M-R-S-A, and it's resistant to multiple antibiotics, and it's capable of passing that resistance sideways into a completely different kind of – into E. coli or salmonella or some other kind of bug and making that bug resistant to all of those antibiotics at once and not by incremental mutation. And that's one of the kinds of things that Darwin and 20th century neo-Darwinism did not foresee. Now, you, you have – you started this book. I mean, how do you, it's interesting because this is a book that you you not just tell the story of Darwin and and subsequent developments, but you sort of profile certain scientists. And one of them that comes to the forefront is from Urbana, uh, Illinois, right? I mean, he he becomes a sort of central figure yep. in, in this project. I mean, how did you how did how did you stumble into this project it's a pretty ambitious book I, 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 my sense is my sense is you didn't whiteboard this one day and like start googling no. scientists right like there's not no, some no no this happened this snuck up on me very gradually um in 2013 i was finished with a book about ebola and other emerging diseases and i was looking for my next book project and i happened to read something about this phenomenon we've just been talking about, horizontal gene transfer, genes moving sideways across species boundaries. Now, I had written probably three books about evolution by that point, and I'd never heard of this. So horizontal gene transfer, sideways movement of genes. Wait, what? What? No, that's no, not right. possible. So, so when, you, when you say what, what, in your mind, this is a game changer. You've written a few books on evolution, and you're thinking, wait, how did I not know this? How did I not know this? And how does this square with other things that I've learned that say that genes do not move sideways into genomes, that um, that genes come down vertically from parents to offspring? And, and I knew three or four different reasons from the history of evolutionary biology why that was supposed to be impossible. For instance, in our complex cells, we animals, plants, fungi, complex creatures, we have these complex cells that has that have the genome sealed off inside of a cell nuclei, cell nucleus. Each cell has a cell nuclei holding the DNA, protecting it from effects from outside so that it's supposed to be impervious to environmental effects. This horizontal gene transfer happens despite that. Yes, there is such a constraint, there is such a boundary, but it turns out that boundary can be overcome. So I'm reading about this in 2013, and I'm saying, well, that's really weird. That's interesting. I read my way into it a little bit farther. I started finding the original papers by some of the scientists who did this work, and I find this guy that you alluded to, Carl Woese, W-O-E-S-E, a microbiologist at the University of Illinois in Urbana, who began this revolution back in 1977 by doing very primitive forms of genome sequencing and finding surprising things. And then, and so he became sort of the spider in the middle of the web 
that I describe in the book. He and one other scientist, a woman named Lynn Margulis, are the two main characters in the book. And they each made discoveries during the second half of the 20th century that have been extremely influential in our understanding of the origins of complex creatures and the shape of evolution uh, now that we have all of the data from genome sequencing. Yeah, from your book, it seems like had Carl been a little more sociable, his work would have been maybe more prominent. Yeah. I'm wondering if if his life was a movie, who plays this guy? I mean, because he seems (laughs) like a pretty salty character. Who plays Carl Woese? Boy. Uh, I don't know, you know, Robert Duvall, Steve Buscemi. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting too that I, as I was reading about, I was thinking about these studies we've seen epigenetics too now, right? Where one of the other sort of things you you kind of learn, I guess, in high school and basic college science or whatever, is that that well, you know, you. you you have these changes in DNA at a hereditary level, right? Okay. If you, you know, a polar bear, you know, one of the bears in the polar regions is born with translucent fur randomly, then is better at hunting, whatever they breed. And eventually over long periods of time, yeah. the the translucent fur, which looks white, takes over and the, you know, brown or black there. But the idea is that if a change happens in the lifetime, it's not passed on. And then studies and yes. things like corn and other things are showing that actually th- things can be changed at a DNA level and then passed on yeah. into heredity, which is, with things like that... Supposed to, and, supposed to be impossible also. Yeah, Let's when, give a name to this. Let's give a name to this. The inheritance of acquired characteristics. That's the idea that's supposed to be impossible. That something that happens to a body of an individual, say an individual animal or a person, during its lifetime can be passed along to the offspring. For instance, um, in, you, you've got pre-giraffe on the, the plains of Africa and the leaves are all up high, so they're stretching their necks, they're stretching their necks, and female giraffe stretches her neck to reach high leaves. Is her baby calf giraffe going to be born with a longer neck? Uh, conventional 20th century Darwinism says, no, that's not going to happen. That's not possible. Um, A man becomes a blacksmith. He builds big muscles. When his daughter is born, is his daughter going to have big muscles? No. That's the idea of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. It's associated with the the French, early French biologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. We call it Lamarckism, and we say, no, that's wrong. It's an illusion. It doesn't happen. But as you mentioned, Scott, now we've got epigenetics. We've got some other things. We've got horizontal gene transfer. We have versions of things that look a whole lot like the inheritance of acquired characteristics, not the the muscles of the blacksmith, but other things, changes either to the DNA uh, code itself or to other aspects of the DNA molecule that affect the way the code is expressed. That's the epigenetics. That happened during a lifetime because of environmental uh, influences, experience of the individual, and that can be passed on to offspring. So it's more complicated than than we used to think. Yeah, and, and that it seems like the things like random and chance uh, – uh, that those things seem to need to be modified in this picture in that life seems like it's finding a way at certain times, right? That, that there seems to be a kind of driving survival instinct or something that, 
that seems to drive the evolutionary process <laughs> in a way that muddies the waters. Well, this is this is tricky. Um, chance, random, um, those are built into the 20th century Darwinian understanding. Yeah, that variations occur, and those variations are essentially random, and then natural selection works on them. The fittest variants survive, and that creates order and adaptation. But the source of the variation is still random mutation. I would say that that's one of the parts of the, con- the conventional understanding, in my view, that is not challenged by this new information, because even horizontal gene transfer, as far as we can tell, is probably random. I mean, there are, there are genes being sent out from bacteria all the time, passing into other bacteria. There are viruses that are infecting the human genome, retroviruses that get in, we can talk about that, get into our genome, become heritable, but that doesn't mean that they're helpful to us. 8% of the human genome we now know is viral DNA that we've acquired from retroviruses that have invaded our reproductive cells and inserted their DNA into our DNA. But most of that is not functional. And in a couple of cases that I can describe, it turns out to be not only functional, but crucial, crucial to successful pregnancy in humans is this one um, gene that we've acquired and adapted from a, from viral DNA. But, you know, many are called and few are chosen. There are lots of changes, insertions of new DNA, and that doesn't mean that they're leading us toward um, better adaptation all the time. So when the bacteria that become resistant to antibiotics, that's just they happen to be in close proximity to each other. And, and how does the gene passing happen? They're just bumping up against each other? Or- well, with, bac- with bacteria, there's a particular mechanism, and the, the experts call it conjugation. Um, and when they're speaking shorthand, they call it bacterial sex. You've got two bacterial particles, two individual bacteria, and one of them sends out sort of a tube um, a little tendril to the other, and then genes, either in DNA, loose DNA, or or rings of DNA, can pass down that tube from one bacterial particle into another. That's why they call it bacterial sex. It's like fertilization, except it's not really bacterial sex because it changes the genome of the receiving bacterium, but it doesn't result in reproduction. Doesn't immediately lead to offspring. Bacterial reproduction is a completely different process. But this is a trading of genes from one bacteria to a bacteria of the same species, and they call it conjugation. And I, I mean, and would we call that random? I mean, that seems like here you have life attempting some sort of process to, 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 to is it a survival process? I mean, why, why do we think bacteria does this? <laughs> this here's, here's, what we, here's what we think. And this this hasn't been absolutely confirmed, but the best the best answer to the question why does this happen in an, in an evolutionary world is that is the phrase that comes from Richard Dawkins selfish DNA that the bacteria are not doing this because they somehow know that this is going to be beneficial to one or the other it might not be it might be a piece of DNA that is harmful or neutral but the DNA itself has been interest and it's replicated. So those bits of DNA, those genes that are most aggressive and most adept at getting themselves copied, maybe into a, another bacterial particle, maybe even into another bacterial lineage, 
even if they perform no function in that other lineage, that gives them another chance of survival. If this lineage goes extinct, comes to a dead end, goes extinct, and that gene has gotten passed over into this lineage, then that gene survives over here. So, Selfish DNA. So every gene is like Donald Trump. I want to be the biggest gene, the most prominent yeah, gene. I'm going to be a tremendous gene. <laughs> we have a tremendous lineage. Now, it's it's interesting. You you point out that Carl uh, Wost, how do I pronounce it again? Carl Wost. Wost. Like like woes is me here. Carl was he yeah. he identified a third sort of category of life, right? That we thought everything yeah, yeah. was kind of bacterial or non-bacterial, and he had this, this other is, thing, this kind of third thing, right? This is in a way, this is where the story starts, or at least the modern part of the story starts. Yeah, uh, this is what put him on the map. Um, he's in Urbana, you know, professor of microbiology. Nobody's heard of him. And he decides that he's interested in the deep history of life. He wants to take the story of life back to the beginning and understand the shape of the tree of life. How's he going to do that? He's going to do it by sequencing portions of genomes of living creatures and then extrapolating backward and seeing how those different genomes may have diverged from one another in the deep, deep past. And we're talking 3 billion years ago, 3.5 billion years ago. He wants to go back that far to a point when all it was on Earth was was microbes, was single-celled, simple single-celled creatures. But what happened? He wants to know, how did those diverge from one another? So he starts sequencing what he thinks are bacteria in the lab using this really old, clumsy, patched-together method of genome sequencing. I mean, it wasn't old for him. He was inventing it as he went along. Toxic chemicals, explosive solvents, high voltage, radioactive phosphorus. He's using all these things in his lab with his trusty assistants and postdocs and graduate students to, to, to sequence gene, portions of the genome of different creatures. And he's looking at what he thinks are bacteria some of what he's looking at. And at that point, conventional wisdom was there are two major kinds of life on earth. There's bacteria and everything else. Bacteria is one big limb on the tree of life. Those cells are simple. They have no cell nuclei, no internal organs. And then there's another group that includes animals, plants, fungi, all the complex creatures with complex cells. He finds a third in between there, a third form of life that they look like bacteria People who looked at them through microscopes always took them for bacteria. But when he sequenced their genome, their genomes, he says, holy cow, these things aren't even bacteria. They're drastically different from bacteria. And in fact, they're more different from bacteria than they are from us, complex creatures. They're close, more closely related to us. He, and those things eventually became known as the archaea a third major kingdom of life, archaea as an old archaic archaeology, because it was thought that they might be descendants of the very oldest form of life on Earth. So that was the first big blast in this series of changes. And that made that put Carl Woese on the front page of the New York Times in 1977. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? 
Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Thomas Kuhn wrote this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, right? And so, you know, like basically, hey, people have this sort of popular view of science that it just kind of goes incrementally on and on and on, you know, one, you know, one incremental development after the other. And this is no, no, very often a paradigm sort of works until it doesn't work, right? And, and oftentimes yep. the people that challenge the reigning paradigm, you know, when you go from Newton to Einstein, there's not a sort of middle ground, right? You kind of have to look, right. you have to kind of sort of start with a different set of assumptions, which can then make sense of everything you knew before but and include it, but but you can't go from... I wonder, with some of these insights, how much do you think, like, how closer are we to sort of shifting paradigms? Or are we just, or are we, do you think this is sort of, hey, this is still, the reigning paradigm works pretty well. We're just tweaking it here, tweaking it there. I mean, do you think around the sort of neo Darwinian picture, I mean, you, 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 you propose, you know, the tree's not the right thing, right? A sort of more sculpted landscape picture, uh, you know, might be what you need to use yeah. in your head to think about this. I mean, I wonder how, how much is, yeah. is there creative tension in the paradigm? Right. Um, this, that's the right way to think about this for sure. I mean, the uh, Newton to Einstein, I use that analogy with Darwin to Woes. Uh, is it a paradigm change in the sense that Thomas Kuhn um, described? Well, it depends on how big a change, how radical a change has to be. But I think it's very plausible to say that this is a paradigm change. In 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 some senses, it's a it's an important modification, and in some senses, it's a paradigm change. If your paradigm is the classic tree of life, you have a single trunk, you have branches diverging, diverging, you know, limbs into branches, branches into lesser branches, and it's always diverging. Now, you could say that is a paradigm going back to Charles Darwin, and we've depended on that paradigm for understanding the history of life on Earth. This work, it changes that paradigm. That's why my book is humbly subtitled A Radical New History of Life. Uh, that tree is not adequate to describe the history of life as we now see it. Is the tree gone entirely? Did we cut down the tree of life? No. We modified. We are modifying the tree of life with with channels that go between branches, with horizontal gene transfer, with convergence of limbs 
as well as divergence of limbs. Now, that's a big, big change. But the sense in which we haven't overthrown the Darwinian paradigm is that those changes are changes to the sources of innovation in populations, the sources of variation between individuals. Now we know it's not just tiny mutations that put differences among individuals that natural selection can act on. It's also these big changes, horizontal gene transfer, bringing in whole new stretches of DNA, bringing sizable um, uh, quanta of variation into individuals and populations. And then natural selection, again, still acts on those. So if your paradigm is the tree of life and, and the fact that evolution must be incremental, tiny changes, the sources of variation are mutation, then your paradigm is, is, has changed. Your paradigm is gone. If your paradigm is, yes, there's variation from one source or another, natural selection works on it, then Woes and Darwin agree and that paradigm stands. If you were talking to high school biology teachers and saying, look, this is how I propose you tell the story to kids who are like sophomores, like, well, what would you tell them to do differently? Well, I hope that high school biology teachers read this book and that it affects the way they teach evolution. Um, because this is a book, you know, you don't have to be a science. I mean, maybe high school biology teachers are science nerds in the best sense. They're more interested than most people. But I tried my best to write this book for for anybody who is curious about planet Earth, life on Earth, and, and history, including our historical origins. What would I say to biology teachers besides please read my book? <laughs> I, I would say, uh, I would say, use the tree of life as a way of, of presenting the equivalent to the Isaac Newton history of life, and then use Carl Woese and horizontal gene transfer in fairly simplified form, but I don't think for smart biology students, I don't think you need to condescend too far. I don't think you need to simplify this too far and say, here's the Einstein of biology who has come along and has complicated our understanding. And the tree of life is not just this endlessly diverging thing anymore. We now know that limbs have come together, including the limbs coming together that have created who we humans are, what we are. We are composites. We have bacterial DNA in us. We have viral DNA in us. We have animal DNA in us. We're composites. We're mosaics of influences from different parts of the living world. What have have your critics said about the book? I mean, obviously, again, you have people, you know, I've read like Richard Dawkins, you know, really critical, for instance, on, say, epigenetics, right? Like, I mean, I've heard he's, yeah. he's pretty largely because there's things that you know i i think in as a sort of public intellectual you know certain people do stuff with that stuff that he that he probably is reactive to and, and yeah and, i mean have there been significant critics of of your work saying hey this guy's going too far he's distorting the picture yeah. come on yeah yeah for instance uh jerry coin who's a who's an eminent american evolutionary biologist and he's a stalwart opponent of creationism and intelligent design and all that and he and richard dawkins richard i know jerry coin i don't know um have been you know the 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 knights in shining armor defending darwinian evolutionary theory from creationism and that's good i, I I'm glad of that. Um, Jerry Coyne reviewed my book in where was it? I think it was the Washington Post, and I, my, I, I haven't reread that review 
Um, but my recollection is that basically he liked the liked the book very much and and said this is a good explanation for these new discoveries. But then his criticism was that um, Quammen has overestimated the these other discoveries have challenged Darwin. Darwin is still good. Darwin was not wrong. I and in defense of myself, I I would say to him what I've just said to you in terms of which elements of classic Darwinism have been changed, which have not. Natural selection, I don't question that, and Woes didn't question that. That's still the mechanism, the crucial mechanism. But the origins of variation, we now know new things that are very important things, and I think much more important than epigenetics. I would agree with with Richard Dawkins on that. Um, So that would be my response respectful response because i think reviewers are entitled to their their reactions their opinions that would be my response to that that look i'm not saying darwin is completely wrong i'm saying that if you take the tree of life and you say this is a categorical truth and this is what i say at the end of the book that's wrong it's not a categorical truth it's a good generalization that has that omits a lot of important detail yeah, it's interesting. I find, in I spend a lot of time talking with people at the intersection of religion and science, and I find when we're talking about physics or kind of cosmology, there's not a lot of animosity, right? You, you see people in these conversations are often having very collegial conversations. When it comes to evolutionary theory and biology and origins, the tension really heats up. And I wonder, is is there criticism because people are worried that any sort of thing that sounds like a critique of Darwin or neo-Darwinism will then be weaponized by by intelligent design people or creationist people to say, see, this is a theory like any other theory and it's got tons of holes. And and, and here's an example of somebody that's not even in our tribe and is showing the holes. Right. And that is... That is one of the reasons why the concern is so heated, why the response from good people like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne, the philosopher of science, Daniel Dennett, um, they have they have sort of been policing the way that these new discoveries are talked about. And if these new discoveries are exaggerated, like you talk about cutting down the tree of life, Darwin was wrong, cutting down the tree of life. There was a magazine that did that. New Scientist did that in 2009, 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, special issue on these discoveries. And they had a picture of a tree on the cover, and and they said Darwin was wrong, cutting down the tree of life. And Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Jerry Coyne reacted to that and sent a letter saying, what are you doing? You're giving aid and comfort to the creationists. You're going overboard. And that was going a bit overboard. Um, So that's one of the reasons why – there is reaction against these ideas. The point is to appreciate how important these ideas are and the ways they fit with some of Darwin's, most of Darwin's most important ideas, but the way they challenge and revise other parts of the theory. And we can do that. We can do that without having to say there, there can be no disagreement among people who believe in evolution because there's too much disagreement between us and the people who don't believe in evolution. We can do that. Is, do you think that science today, like everything else, is falling prey to too much politicization and, and ideology? I mean, like it's it's like, gosh, if you if you go to Chick-fil-A, it's a political decision. If you do that, it's it seems like every square inch of our daily life is somehow 
politicized or, or cast in ideological terms. Is science falling prey to that in the public square? Well, it is. I mean, particularly under this administration. And, you know, we don't even want to go there, I'm sure. But um, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you, you want to sell books to Republicans. here. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I do. A lot of wonderful, wonderful, curious Republicans out there. And I think that they will find this book interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm, we're not going to talk politics, but yes, um, science um, you know, science is intertwined intricately with policy, with political decisions. Scientists deliver their findings, their best findings to us, to society, to the communities. And then we're the ones who have to make the decisions about how those discoveries are applied, whether it's gene editing and the creation of designer babies or not, um, climate change. There's a big area of science where, um, the the uh, the onus is now on society to to act on on what science has very 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 persuasively um, told us, um, but it's but it's hard because we live in a in a, a a woefully polarized political environment in this country and and in Europe and in a lot of places around the world now, um, and that's really unfortunate. We need we need people to be able to talk to each other despite their differences of opinion on politics and even on, on morality and theology and still, still be able to be a community. Yeah. And I wonder how much I think about things that we don't do in sort of public education or, you know, basic education formation. I, I wonder how much we would be benefited here with spending more time on how to think, you know, basic epistemology and things like that. How do people, how do you know what you know and, and, and how do you examine ideas and assumptions and things like that. And I, I feel like m so many people even graduate college without some basic ability to understand critical thinking. <laughs> Absolutely. Critical thinking and um, judgment of, of evidence and pseudo evidence. I mean, now we have the internet and there's all this information and pseudo information flying around. If I were teaching a if I were teaching in a university, I don't teach at all. I'm a full-time freelancer. But if I were teaching in a university and almost in any department, I would want to teach a course. I think I would probably call it Shit from Shinola. And I, and I say that <laughs> on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it would be uh, helping students um, assess the information that comes to them from the Internet. And from other sources, but particularly the Internet, because that's where we get most of our information these days. But, you know, radio, television, too. How to assess information. Somebody says, hey, there's science says that um, that uh, red wine is causes cancer. Oh, OK. So we're all going to stop drinking red wine. Or science says that coffee causes cancer or milk causes cancer. Are we all going to start stop drinking milk, stop drinking coffee? Well, students and everybody else has to have to know. Well, how do we look at that claim? Science says this. Well, which science? Three scientists at the the University of you know um, East Timbuktu uh, or you know Fairfield, Kentucky or whatever. Uh, some you know remote. No, I don't have anything against Timbuktu or Kentucky. Let me just get on the record for that. But, <laughs> uh, um, who says this? Science says this. Well, who you know. Three people who did a, one study with the sample size of, of X. 
How do we assess that? How do we judge that claim? Have there been other studies? Have they replicated the results? How, what's their sample size? What's the force of their evidence? How good are their credentials? All of those things. Go back behind the astonishing or the dramatic claim and find out what kind of data is it based on? What kind of logic is it based on? Yes, I agree with you entirely, Scott. We desperately need to be giving our young people, our students, that kind of education. Yeah, I had a friend uh, who does a, a pretty, it, it's one of the most widely listened to podcasts on the internet. It's called The Liturgists. And he did a whole episode on fake news. And it was so basic. I was like, yeah, but I guess people need to hear this. Like, he's like, when I, he's like, I read multiple news sources. And when I look at a news source, I see, is the article attributed? What's the dating? What's the, the you know, how how is it sourced? I mean, these are just such basic things, right? Yeah. But there are yeah. things that, that, yeah, I agree that you could go through and be a college graduate and not have these basic sifting skills right. for the main source of information that most of us are now getting. Right. right. Yeah. What's your friend's name? Uh, his name's uh, uh, Mike uh, McGrath. Uh, uh, Mike McGrath. Okay. Well, good. Good on him. He's already teaching my shit from Shinola class. Right. He's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His his nickname is Science Mike. Actually, it's very funny. Uh, but uh, oh, cool. he's a great guy. I wonder, do you, as a guy who's writing it in science in a sort of post fact era, I mean, are you like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> what did I choose to do? I mean, is it is it is it depressing the sort of cultural moment we're in? Has that discouraged you at all? As as you write on, as you try to sort of, and you do. I, I'll tell you, the tree of life. I mean, it's you do tell a compelling story about our origins and how science unearths that. It's not discouraging to me. It's inspiring to me because it makes me feel like this is really important. This is more important than ever. Saying to non-scientific folks, saying to general readers and general listeners, look, don't abdicate your responsibility to understand this stuff and don't surrender your opportunity to know about this stuff. Come with me. I'm not a scientist either. And we can we can do this. Follow me. We'll go step by step and we can engage with this material. It's fascinating. It's human. It's storytelling. And it's also scientific and hugely important. So I view this as an opportunity all the stronger in the current um, in the current situation, in the current climate to say to people, look, you want to know a bit about science because otherwise people are going to be lying to you and misleading you. Come on with me and go into this stuff a bit. There'll be storytelling. It'll be fun. We'll turn pages. There'll be drama. There'll be mysteries that are solved. And then you will be better equipped to understand you know, what you hear on NPR or see in your morning newspaper or see on CNN or Fox News. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes I think we view scientists it's like a sort of it's like medieval the medieval priest class right well they have the secret exactly, knowledge yeah. or the secret knowledge right and, and a book like yours shows that, hey look wow if you're a, you know a literate person you can read scientific journal articles you can read like this stuff is not esoteric and and just it doesn't take a lot maybe you're it, you might have to get over some ptsd from high school science or something because you weren't <laughs> that into it or but then once you get over that hump, it's actually not as intimidating as you often think. And, and you'd be surprised how much, right, as someone who's not a, a scientist, you can learn. And, and, and like yourself, write about and, and write about in some sense authoritatively, like without being a research scientist. Yes, absolutely. 
And that's the um, that's that's a message I want to convey to readers. Science. Another part of this science is a human process. Um, science is done by people and they have ambitions and they have grudges and they have jealousies uh, and they have insecurities and they have friendships. And all of that goes into science. That's part of the story of science, all of those things, which means that it's really interesting. It's it's dramatic. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, I, I'm not trained as a scientist, but I write about this stuff. I do a lot of homework. I'm mostly self-educated. I read a, a ton of journal papers and, you know, I read them three Times before and 60% of what's in, but I'm able to, I think, I hope I'm able to explain it to other non-scientists because I remember what it's like not to, not to comprehend it and, and how you have to take it step by step and be very clear. So not being a scientist myself, I think it actually is an advantage for me in explaining um, science to other non-scientists. Yeah, and your book, I mean, reading it sort of is a testament against the sort of myth of specialization. I feel like in a special, and there's a great thing about the specialization of knowledge we have, but it kind of sometimes silos us and we think, well, I, you know, I can know a lot about a very little, you know, segment of knowledge and, and, and we become kind of isolated, especially in academic circles. But, you know, it, it, you, you demonstrate how now, I mean, knowledge is everyone's province and really you can learn a lot as someone uninitiated, uninitiated in a specialization and integrated into the other things, you know, and, and really the, the and when it, it seems like, you know, the world becomes a less alienating place, the more you can knit things together in it and make a whole out of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, um, you know, one of the things that I hear occasionally from readers after they've read one of my books, and my, and my books are very different from one another. They they mostly involve the natural sciences, but I've written on a number of different areas of natural science. But when when somebody comes up to me and says, I read your book, The Song of the Dodo, about evolution and extinction and islands, it changed the way I see the world. Or I read your book, Spillover, about emerging viruses and coming from animals into humans change the way i see the world i love that that's uh, that's the highest praise as far as i'm concerned i'm not saying it happens every day but when it happens i really appreciate that it really is gratifying to me for somebody to say i read your book it was fun but it changed the way i see the world okay great uh, well i hope it can it, that your work continues to have that effect and i'll tell you it, this helped shape the way I see things, the Tangle Tree, a radical new history of life. I hope uh, more people engage it. It's a great book. And thanks for coming on the podcast and talking with me about it. Thank you, Scott. appreciate your interest in it. Appreciate the deep engagement. And it's nice to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends. 
fare thee well.